Joyce. Thank you. Well, good morning. And as we say in Anderson, welcome to this gathering of South Canyon Baptist Church. Um, I want to give you greetings from your brothers and sisters at Calvary Baptist in Anderson. They have been praying for us, for South Canyon, and for what God is doing here. And we're very excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, I will tell you that um, we're very humbled by the care and the attention and detail that the search committee has given to us as a family coming out and making all this possible. Uh, we, we just have really enjoyed our time here. And it doesn't hurt that you're in one of the most beautiful places in the country. So um, it's been really a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, I feel bad for the sound guys this morning because it might have been my fault that the screens didn't work because I prayed with the elders right before church that if I stuttered, if the sound went glitchy, that it wouldn't distract us. We're here to worship God. I understand what this day is, um, but ultimately we're here because of Jesus, for Jesus. And so um, be prepared for me to stutter, stutter, see what I just did there. So you got it first, now it's my turn. What's your reaction to suffering and hardship? Joel just led us in prayer for our brothers and sisters in Algeria that have endured great things over the years. But let's bring it a little bit closer to home. We know that through the ages, Christians have suffered for their faith. Followers of Jesus, because of the name of Jesus, have lost their employment. Some have lost their possessions, even their homes and lands, and many even their lives. And today is no different, really. Whether it's in the Middle East, Asia, Africa, now even in Europe, and even in North America, we're starting to see pressure upon those who take a stand for Jesus. You might be aware of this, but in October, 17 missionaries in Haiti were taken captive as hostages. They were being held for ransom. Five of those 17 were children, one just eight months old. A short time later, five were set free, but the other 12 were held captive for 63 days before they escaped. I want to just think about this for a moment. What would you do if you were in their shoes? How would you respond to the absolute inability to improve your situation and questioning whether or not God was sovereign, whether or not God was hearing your prayers for deliverance, whether, whether or not God would in fact do that very thing? How do you respond when inconvenienced by traffic or the rising costs in the non-inflation inflation that we're experiencing? Or shortages of toilet paper, building materials? How about more serious hardships? I mean, maybe we vent our frustrations by shouting at the driver in front of us, or we blow up at our family or coworkers. But have you had the joy of witnessing a believer who has experienced great difficulty and loss, and yet they accept those circumstances as from the sovereign and good God. And they go through that trial with joy 
and a sweet confidence in him. And maybe you marveled at that because, like me, you kind of lose it when things don't go well. And you're like, how do they do that? Well, this morning, I hope that we can answer that question from our text in 1 Peter chapter 1. The title of the sermon is To Praise Him in the Storm. And I'd encourage you to open your copy of the Scriptures and join me in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 9. So please hear the Word of God from 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, and may he write these truths upon our hearts. Father, we pray that you would give us confidence in who you are and what you are doing. Even as we suffer, let us rejoice in the joy of our salvation and let us exalt your name. Bless us now as we consider your word. May your spirit work in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter was not written <clears throat> like Paul's letter to the Galatians to troubleshoot problems. In fact, there are no theological heresies that Peter is trying to confront and address. It was written to strengthen Christians who were in jeopardy of losing their lives. They're in the midst of various trials we just read in verse 6. Peter goes on to say in chapter 3 and verse 16, they're likely to be falsely accused as evildoers. Chapter set, or verse 7 of chapter 1 and verse 12 of chapter 4, there's this mention of a fiery ordeal that will await them. 
And when they suffer, they are to commit themselves to God, Peter tells them in chapter 4. And they may well have to suffer for righteousness' sake, he says in chapter 3. So over and over we see this thread of Peter preparing people for hardship if they're not already in it. They're sharing in the affliction which the Christian brotherhood throughout the world is called upon to endure. Barclay says this, that, that the, the, they are sharing in this affliction that is similar to the brotherhood throughout the world. I mean, that, that is remarkable. It's something that we need to remember today. When we suffer for the name of Jesus or when we suffer for the effects of living in a sin-cursed world, what is happening to us is not unique. Now, I know the saying says that misery loves company, but that's not really true, right? But there is a sense in which we need to place ourselves in the bigger scheme of things. So as we look at verses 3 through 5, I want you to consider this thought. Peter makes it very clear that we are to praise the God who saves and keeps you. Looking at verses 3 through 4, Peter wants them to remember what God had done for them in the past. And what did God do? But Peter says this, you need to bless him. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope. What did God do? He caused people to know him and to respond to him in repentance and faith. A new beginning, a new birth, this infusion of divine life. God has caused this to happen. Notice what Peter does not say. We caused it. Peter doesn't say, you arrived, Christian. Now enjoy the fruits of your labors. He says, according to his great mercy, he caused us. It's not by our good works. It's not by our ability to overcome adversity, of which no doubt we have all seen and experienced on some level. It is not by us making something of ourselves. I've already learned that this is a hard-working church. People are very independent. They, they will fix it themselves. They will work on it themselves. But it is God who shows mercy. If you turn over to Titus chapter 3, just bring these verses to your attention. Paul, another writer of the New Testament, another apostle of Jesus Christ, he writes these words in Titus chapter 3, and look at verse 5 and 6. Same theme, so that we don't think that Peter's the only one that holds to this strange view of how one becomes a Christian. Paul says this in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. He, being God, saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You could go on reading verses 7 through 9, uh, verses 7 and 8, but I don't want to get distracted, so we're going to keep moving. Peter is telling us that God has planned this all. If you go back to 1 Peter, look at the first two verses. Notice the the work of the Trinity in play here. 
Peter says that God planned this all in verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Notice, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. The Trinity is involved in our salvation. Each member accomplishes their role, fulfilling their purposes, Father, Son, and Spirit. So Peter's very clear. We didn't earn this, this great salvation. We have been given it. Peter makes it very clear that he is writing to believers, too. Did you notice that? This isn't a universal salvation that Peter's talking about. How does one know if they've been given and received the grace and mercy of God? It is not by anything other than this confidence. Look what he says. He is writing to those who are elect. Elect. Further, he's told us how God has saved us, and he gives them a benediction, a blessing. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. The one who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Peter's very clear that this is a, le- a message to believers about how they should respond to trials. And they are to reckon all suffering in comparison to God's great mercy and power. And it comes through Jesus' substitutionary death and resurrection. So from the beginning of his letter, Peter wants it to be clear that God's salvation, his saving of us is what leads to good works. It's not the other way around. Let me share some ways that this term, this phrase, living hope, has been explained. It's a hope that's characterized by firmness and certainty. It grows and increases in strength as living things do. It possesses or brings life from God. It is certain as well as fruitful and effective. And it is a hope that is founded on a reality, a substantial reality, which is the resurrection of Christ. It is valid and it will not disappoint. It stands in sharp contrast to any and all other religious systems. How did God accomplish this great work, this great act of mercy in causing us to be born to this living hope? Well, we're told in verse 3 that it was through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, think about this for a moment because we tend to just think Jesus rose and we move on quickly from that. But understand the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As I speak to believers this morning, I hope that there are some here who aren't believers who have been invited by friends or family to come. And so this is a very key component of our belief system, that Jesus died a real death and that he came back from the dead. And that is, that is what our faith hangs on. Our hope is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. God did this as a sign of his approval for his son's obedience, as a sign of being satisfied of his just and holy wrath against sin, which Jesus took upon himself. God committed himself to raising not only his son from the dead, but us as well. 
And that is why Peter so clearly emphasizes the nature of this living hope, that it is imperishable, right? Aren't you tired of finding moldy food somewhere tucked away in the back of the fridge? Maybe you don't. I don't know. It's undefiled. It's unfading. The nature of our inheritance, purchased by the death and resurrection of Jesus, is enduring. It will never be sanded smooth by wind and rain. It will never burn in a great fire. It will endure governments and rulers and princes. And Peter emphasizes this. And we need to understand that the Bible makes this statement so strongly and so clearly that It teaches that Jesus did die and that he was raised from the dead three days later. And let me just be very clear. Anyone who denies this is not a Christian. This is the essence of our faith. Well, why did Jesus have to die? Why is the resurrection necessary for us to experience it? Why couldn't Jesus just come and, like, remove all the bad guys And then institute laws and systems in which we could then be under a good and benevolent and wise and perfect king. Why couldn't he just do that? Well, the Bible makes it very clear. There was a day in which God created and made all things good. And the first man and women were given an opportunity to serve God by obedience to him. And they chose to go a different route. They rebelled against him. And in their decision, in the act of Adam, that first man to sin against God by listening to the voice of his wife and the serpent, all of us fell. All of us have an innate ability to react to authority, don't we? Uh, We were at dinner with Tanner and Laura. And Sylvia, cute as a button, loved to take stuff and throw it on the floor. And they'd pick it up, they'd give it back to her, no, 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 and she'd throw it on the floor. Did that, brother, four times. You know, that, that's just, it's cute, right? But that's just a, it's an example of this innate desire within us to push back and to want our own will and our own way. And that will ultimately lead us to a final and eternal separation from God. And so God, in his great mercy, in his foreknowledge, established a plan by which he can redeem sinners who are ignorant of him or who are willfully rebelling against him. And he can win their hearts with the power of the Spirit. And then finally, because we've been sprinkled by the blood of his Son, we will willingly obey Jesus. Now here's the sobering thought, something that we can deduce from Peter's letter. If God had not shown mercy to us, God had not shown mercy to you, God had not shown mercy to me, then we would only know him as judge and not father. And that's a scary place to be. I've stood before a judge before. I was guilty. I confessed to it. Now you're going to be curious. That's a tidbit. Come back at 5 p.m. and hear the rest of the story, all right? We were enslaved to sin. 
That's what Peter says in verse 18 of chapter 1. And without God's mercy, we would die in our sins. This is what Peter says in chapter 2 and verse 24. So his resurrection from the dead provides the freedom and power to obey God. And the result of being united to Christ by faith is to see your sins die with Christ. And it's also to see yourselves raised to a new life of holiness and righteousness through him. And this new life is to be lived in a contrast to the old life. It is now a life to be lived for him and his purposes. And that's what Peter does in verses 13 through 21. He steps right into that from our passage. Now just think about this. What a joy it is. What a privilege it is for us to hear the gospel proclaimed. Because what Peter says in verses 10 through 25 is there was a day in which nobody knew exactly how this was going to work out, and the prophets longed to understand it. And now it's been revealed to us by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. I can see I'm already running a little behind, so I'm going to just say this. If you take some time this afternoon, you've got to read this passage from Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 11. It is not only Peter who thought this way about the gospel, but Paul as he wrote to the Christians in Rome. And you read Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 11, and you will see what Paul says is absolutely in step with what Peter has said. So Peter's made it very clear. Here's what God has done for us in the past, verses 3 and 4. In the past, there was a point in time in which God saved us from our sin, where his call was answered. The Spirit gave us faith to see things as God saw them and in our humility to repent and plead for help and mercy and to accept by faith the finished work of Christ. But now I want you to see what Peter shows us in verse 5. God's not just done with us in the past. So many Christians have thought this way. Like back in 1993, I was saved on such and such a day, mother's couch, whatever it was. And it's a point in time. And then from then on, that's all that's happening. That's all that God's concerned about. But verse 5 tells us that God is doing something for his elect in the present. He is guarding us by his power. You see that God is protecting us, and he is preparing us for a salvation that will be revealed in the last time. And, and what Peter does is he moves from a living hope, an inheritance, to a salvation. Now he's told us what he's speak, been speaking about. Living hope, inheritance, salvation, I think they're all three the same thing. Not different things. And Peter uses these images to describe the future and final salvation that we will experience when Christ returns for the final judgment. Salvation is the actual possession of the inheritance with its fullness of life and open vision of God. It's the final deliverance from Satan, from persecution, from sorrow. This is the eternal living hope that God has called us to. I, done Last year I did three weddings, and I did four funerals. I'm tired of seeing people I love die. 
I'm tired of fighting sin in my own heart. I'm tired of being in the hospital with people who are getting really scary diagnosis. I mean, there's a day coming, brethren, when all this is gone. That's the hope that we're looking towards. It's not a a well-stocked and funded 401k. It's not a retirement investments. It is that. That's the goal. That's our aim. That's the purpose. And God is guarding us for this purpose. Paul says it like this. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Colossians 3. Now, as I said earlier, how is it that we know or can we know if this faith, if this this inheritance, this living hope, this salvation has truly been ours. How can we know if indeed we are beneficiaries of the resurrection of Jesus? When you notice Peter says this, he speaks of a faith in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I want us to think about this for a moment, this idea of faith. Whose faith is it? God is guarding those whom he has raised from death to life until the last day. And we believe this. This is our faith. This is our confidence that we are protected by God because we have believed the gospel, which is God's declaration of how he will save sinners through Jesus. That we believe that indeed we have been sanctified by the Spirit, not fully but in part and growing day by day. We believe that the death, the blood of Jesus was poured out for our healing. And therefore, What Peter said at the beginning of verse 3, that word blessed, it is our duty to respond with thanksgiving to God for his mercy in Christ Jesus for saving us, for giving us an eternal hope. It is right and good that all who are saved acknowledge and rejoice in God's excellency and goodness. Matthew Henry says this, and I'm paraphrasing here because it's Matthew Henry, and he's been gone a long time. To pretend to have something we really don't is hypocrisy. And to deny, to deny what we have is ingratitude. Don't let your trials eclipse what you have. And let's stop being people who want to portray what we have and we don't possess it. Today is the day of salvation. Today is an opportunity for you, even if the guys, if the, if the word on the street is that you are a believer and you've been coming to South Canyon for some time, but in your heart you know that you don't have confidence, that you don't have faith. Today is an opportunity for you to talk with Tanner or Joel or any of the elders and to seek out how you too can have this understanding of repentance and forgiveness. So God has saved us, and God is preserving us until the final day when our faith becomes sight. But why do we need God to guard us? 
And this is the answer that we find in verses 6 through 9. This is where I, I get the point of the hardship. Praise him in the storm. We've this great and glorious salvation that we have no right to, no, no at all real legitimate access or claim to that's been given to us. And if that weren't enough to get us up and dancing, but now Peter says our rejoicing in God ought to continue even as we are grieved by various trials. So as you notice, verses 6 and 7, in this rejoice, the, looking back, the salvation, that inheritance, that living hope that's been given to you by God's mercy, rejoice in this, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The in this is the experience of rebirth. It is the anticipation of an even greater salvation that is still yet to be experienced. It's all the blessings that Peter enumerates in verses 3, 4, and 5. God is guarding us from this. Temptations that come through trials. God has saved us. God is guarding us. And he is protecting us from trials that will seek to destroy our faith. Trials that will tempt us to doubt his love. Trials that will tempt us to forget our inheritance to place all our eggs in the basket of our best life now rather than in that which is to come. Trials rob us of the joy of our salvation. Now remember the context of 1 Peter is Christians who are suffering. So the sword is hanging over their heads. Think of the temptations they faced. Persecution may lead them to question their faith. Is God really good? Is he sovereign? Temptation, the persecution may tempt them to stop gathering with other Christians. I don't want to be associated with them. Remember Paul, Acts 8? He's breaking up church services, hauling people off to jail. That wasn't just a Jewish thing, persecuting Christians. This is, uh, you read history and you realize what was going on in the Roman Empire and it was, it was just horrible. So the idea of stepping away, you know, life is too hard, so the last thing I want to do is come to South Canyon on Sunday and hear the gospel because I know where I'm struggling, I know I haven't been living up to the name of Jesus, and I'm looking at my works rather than his, and I feel small, I feel embarrassed, I feel ashamed, and so I stopped gathering with Christians. Persecution may have tempted them to renounce Jesus in order to save their own lives. You see, when we submit to the gospel, it's always going to be connected. There's always going to be a tension with a temptation. When you stand up for Jesus at school and your friends start teasing you for praying before you eat your lunch, or they ask you about this or that and you're like, no, I don't do that because I'm a Christian. 
we will always have the temptation to shrink back from that and to be accepted by the world, even if it means denying Jesus. So trials often reveal where we've placed our hopes. And this is a reality that has been really hard for me. In 2008, um, we just got home from spring break. It was my first day back at work, and I was running home for lunch, and I was taking a left-hand turn in an intersection, and a semi-truck hit me. And for nearly the next two years, uh, life was totally changed. I was not the father I was used to being, the husband I was used to being, the provider I was used to being. Had all many, many months of healing before they would do surgery. And in the months of healing, I had to go to physical therapy, and then it was surgery, and then it was healing, and then it was physical therapy again. Nearly two years. Now, I'm standing here today. Why did God do that? Why in the most vulnerable point of our life, moving from ministry to what's next and having a very low-wage income, just a single house with four kids? And Grace was just a couple months old, and I couldn't hold her for like six months. Why did God do all that? I have no idea. I have no idea, but I can tell you this, standing here, that God changed me through it. He taught me to be more trusting and more patient. He changed our family. God never not provided for us. You like that double negative? He always provided for us. We didn't lack in anything. I learned to see that God is faithful. But what was important to me was the strength of a young man. It was what I could do. It was all the plans that I had. And so when you enter a trial, let me just challenge you. When you are most frustrated, consider what, where you've been placing your hope. Is that why you're frustrated? Is it in the things of this world? Maybe it's good health or it's your relationships or it's the loss of status, or the desire for wealth or pleasure, whatever it is. Is that what your hope is? Or is it in an inheritance, a living hope that will never end, that will never be corrupted, and that will never wear out? Suffering is often extremely helpful in clarifying what is important to us. And as Christians, it should be the Lord his reputation, and our inheritance. And if it's not, then here's a moment where we can turn the corner, where we can confess that and ask God to give us those desires to act in obedience to Him. And it is hard to maintain this perspective. It is very hard. The circumstances of our lives, they put pressure on us. To be a Christian is to suffer. I know there's a pastor in Texas that would tell you otherwise. You only suffer because your faith isn't strong enough. You only suffer because uh, God wants you to just do this or you do that. But suffering is not what is supposed to be the mark of a Christian, and yet Jesus says, you know what, when you follow me, you're going to have to pick up your cross daily. If they've treated me this way, then if you're my disciple, be ready. They will treat you this way. And somehow we lose that. We want to be treated better than our king. 
We want to be treated differently than he was. We want the easy, you know, the easy button. Well, Peter's analogy of our faith ought to encourage us. Let me show you this. Notice what he says, that our faith is more precious than refined gold. Now, what is that supposed to do for us? I want us to see that God does not put us into difficult situations because he's angry at us. Yet there is consequences to sin, and you can learn more about that tonight at 5 p.m. You're looking at a guy who's deeply flawed and has been a recipient of incredible grace. There are consequences to sin. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you are serving the Lord and you're trying to do whatever you can to be a ministry, to share the gospel with coworkers and neighbors. You're inviting people to church. You're plugged into your, your small groups. You're serving here, and yet bad things just keep piling on you. I don't want you to experience those things and believe for one moment that God doesn't care about you. Because Peter uses a monetary uh, image for us. What's more valuable than refined gold? Well, in earthly world, not much. But in God's economy, it's not gold. I mean, if he's going to put it on the streets, it's not that important to him. Where all the gum and the dirty feet go. What is most important is our faith. And God desires to see this faith refined, strengthened, and grow. We are precious in his sight So even though, even as, if necessary for a little while, we are grieved by various trials, we must never believe that God is trying to destroy our faith. He is using these experiences and this season to produce eternal fruit and earthly good in us. I don't know who said this, but I thought it's so true. Faith isn't measured by how little or how much feeling we have, but by submitting to our Father's work in our lives. Remember to keep perspective about your various trials. Even the most serious won't last forever. There's a song, I have a shelter in the storm. No trial is deeper than your love that comforts all my sorrows. We must reckon, we must consider, we must do the work of calculating and accounting and look at what God has given us and then compare that to what we're going through and then to throw all of our hopes and aspirations on God. And when we do, we will see that all earthly suffering pales in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus and persevering in the faith. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 16 through 18. So verse 3 through 5, they describe what God has done for the elect. Verses 6 through 9 describes the believer's response to these trials, to opposition from within and without. And what we find is that genuine faith will be rewarded when Jesus returns. Look at verse 7. What a comfort to know that our suffering isn't pointless. Those who rejoice in God and what he has done for us 
are promised praise, glory, and honor when Jesus returns. Now, I had to do some work in the Greek to understand. Is it us that by our obedience, somehow we're the model of what a Christian is, and then we are like directing praise to him, and that we, people glorify God because of our lives. But in fact, what Peter is saying is this. For those who bless the name of God and who rejoice in their salvation, even when suffering for cancer or lost relationships or whatever, lost jobs, when they rejoice in God, it is God who will praise and glorify and honor them when he returns. What a motivation, right? You're going to get an attaboy from Jesus. He's going to be the one that says, man, I'm so proud of you. You did it. And so I think as what Peter is getting to here is he, he wants us to rejoice in what God has done for us even as we suffer, not only to be a testimony to him, but also as a comfort to us that God is pleased when his people worship and honor him even as they suffer. And finally, as we look at verses 8 and 9, I think there's another value in this rejoicing aspect. Not only does it comfort us to know that we'll be rewarded, that there's a point to this, that there's an end to this, but look at verses 8 and 9. There's a real experience of knowing Jesus. And that gives us confidence. Peter says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, Peter had, right? I mean, think about this. The guy writing to you was the one that said, Jesus, you are the Christ. He was also the one that Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Right? He's the, also the one that denied Jesus three times under threat of suffering with Jesus, even after he said, I'll go to death with you. This is a guy who walked with Jesus, who ate with Jesus, who spent years with Jesus. And he's saying, brethren, I'm so proud of you because though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy, a joy that's inexpressible, a joy that's filled with glory, a joy that ultimately obtains the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so as we wind things down, Peter is telling them, you need to rejoice and understand that this relationship that you have with Christ, although you have never seen him, will give you confidence. And just like these elect exiles haven't, though, have any of us seen Jesus? No. And yet we love him. We believe and rejoice in him. And the salvation that he's purchased for us. And we know him and we know that he knows us. I mean, that's real confidence. For a child to run up to a stranger and ask for five bucks, maybe if he's cute enough, they might give it to him. But they have confidence when they go to their dad and ask for something that he will give them. We have this real relationship with God. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4.8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me also, but all who have loved his appearing. You see, Christians, our mission hasn't changed. South Canyon, your mission hasn't changed. 
God has called us to worship him. He has called us to evangelize our community, to disciple one another, to equip the next generation of leaders and deacons and elders, to teach our children, to pray for one another and with one another, to confess our sins. And although this church has suffered many hardships, even while laboring to plant redeeming grace, you should rejoice in your Lord and in your salvation. You should be reminding one another of what God has done, what God is doing, and notice what God will do. You see, our salvation is in a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. This is not just like I got in and I've got my golden ticket and I'm just waiting. God is guarding us. He saved us. He's guarding us. And he's promising us the future. So unbeliever, if you're here this morning, thank you for being here. We do a lot of weird things as Christians, singing and praying, reading scriptures, listening to long sermons. But did you notice in verses 8 and 9 that this inexpressible joy is only available to those who love God, who believe in him and rejoice in him? That word know who in a word know Jesus and are known by him. And let me just invite you that today you can know him. A hymn, Why Should I Sorrow More? Why should I sorrow more? I trust a Savior slain and be safe beneath his sheltering cross. Unmoved I shall remain. Let Satan and the world now rage or now allure, the promises in Christ are made immutable and sure. The oath infallible is now my spirit's trust. I know that he who spoke the word is faithful, true, and just. He'll bring me on my way to my journey's end. He'll be my father, my God, my savior, and my friend. And all that remains for me is but to love and sing and wait until the angels come to bear me to the king. We recently traveled, as Royce mentioned, to South Carolina. Our oldest son got married on January 1st. And on the way down, Gabe and I, the tallest of the taller kids, uh, we were listening to the podcast about these Haitian missionaries giving their testimony of what was it like for those 63 days of being in captivity. We started with it, so I might as well finish the rest of the story. We listened to a brother who was sharing their story, and what amazed and rebuked me was their repeated submission to God's will. You know, they were not praying, God, get us out of here. God, we don't deserve this. We came to help the Haitian people, and this is how you treat your people? No, he actually said this. They all, all 12 of them, believed it was God's will that they were held hostage. And in that moment, they kept worshiping, singing, and praying. They were witnessing to their captors. They were prepared, if necessary, to lay down their lives in service to their King Jesus. Now, what would cause anyone to leave family home and friends to travel far away to dangerous places to share the gospel. 
Or what would cause anyone to leave, move halfway across the country to serve Jesus? Because they count Christ more valuable than family, home, and friends. Yeah, it's scary. And there are real dangers and hardships. But when one reflects on what God has done for them, how could we ever tell him no? So how do we maintain this perspective of rejoicing, of peace, of the certainty of heaven, which outweighs the horrors, the pains, the agonies that we experience on earth? Here's the secret sauce, Christians. We must rehearse the gospel to ourselves daily. And I want to close this morning by adapting Peter's opening statement in verses 1 and 2. To those whose citizenship is in heaven and live as sojourners in Rapid City, Blackhawk, Box Elder, Rapid Valley, Hill City, and on, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Father, we thank you for the sweetness of our Savior. We thank you for the glories of the cross and the joy of knowing you through your Son, Jesus. We ask now, simply, Father, that your word would be in us, guiding and directing us. That by rehearsing the gospel daily to ourselves and reflecting on this undeserved, overwhelming mercy, that we would have joy and hope that we could praise you in the storm. I pray that you would build the faith of your people and that you would bring many, many more into your family. In Jesus' name, amen.